So hello and welcome. Happy Friday. Today is Friday, July the 29th. Last episode for Backyard Beekeeping questions and answers for the month of July. And this is episode number 169 and... Welcome to another episode of The Way to Be. There you have it. This is The Way to Be for my grandson, Quinn. So, 74 degrees Fahrenheit outside, which is 23 Celsius. If you want to know what we're going to talk about today, please look down in the video description below. This is also a podcast on Podbean. Thank you to those of you who listened to that. So, all the stuff is there. Opening sequences, by the way. What was that? Super close up. Grooming behavior in several of my hives. So, bees come in from outside. They go on the brood area there, and they pause. There's like a grooming segment right on the frames there that a lot of bees come and use. They stop and a grooming bee gets all over them. And I want you to notice too, that bee spreads its wings out and lets the bees groom it. Lets the fellow workers groom it up and then they go on about their business inside the hive. It's very interesting, this grooming behavior. I think it would be very difficult for a bee to show up coming home, going to the brood area and getting through there with a mite attached to it without having that removed by these grooming bees because they, they cover them from head to toe. Anyway, if you want to know how to submit your own question, please go to thewaytobe.org and uh, you click on the page that's marked The Way to Be. There's a form there. You can fill it out. You can be anonymous or provide information. It's totally up to you. My first question today comes from Steve, Putnam Lake, New York. When honeybees release an attack scent, do other close-by colonies also attack? Does the scent affect other types of bees or even wasps? That's a really good question. And we know that honeybees, by the way, are pheromone-based. They communicate heavily by pheromone. They're also tactile, so they do a lot. They see things, but uh, when they sting, in particular, they release an alarm pheromone with the stinger. So that's a big deal, and I'll explain why in a second. They can also bite and mark a target, so they can release a pheromone uh, from their mouths as well. So, and this is how they mark an intruder that comes into the hive. When the guard bee, they have their little mandibles open and their four limbs are up and, and they could give a bite to something or they latch onto its foot. They release alarm pheromones that let other bees in that colony know, go after this one, there's a problem. So those are two pheromone sources. The other one is, of course, when the stinger stings something, as the stinger passes out of the bee into the flesh of most often uh, a mammal, um, it's also covered with another alarm pheromone. So the bees know then. That's why so many stings happen in close proximity to one another. I don't know if you've ever been like uh, grooming the yard around your beehives or something, and maybe your glove was open just a little bit and you were creating some vibration. And the one spot where you got a sting, you very quickly received a series of stings from other honeybees right there. And this is also the reason why. So this is reinforcement of the fact that the bees do sting where other bees have stung. So they, wherever that alarm pheromone is, bees from even other colonies recognize that as a threat target marker and uh, they'll sting it also. And one of the ways that we know that too is beekeepers wearing dirty bee suits. Beekeepers wearing heavy gloves that have a lot of bee stingers in them as they go through their tasks in their beehives. Uh, 
And when they get a bunch of stings on that, then you'll find out the next bee that stings the glove stings very close to where the other stingers are located. They don't come to the glove and sting it on the other side or closer to the wrist or out on the fingertips. Where the first bee stings, the others do um, also sting close by. And it gets a reaction from them. So it doesn't have to be a bee from the same hive. So that's a very interesting question. It's a good one. Um, as far as other species of bees and hornets or wasps, I don't know um, of any that react to the pheromone released by honeybees. There are some myths out there too about not eating bananas or having banana oil in your apiary on you that that somehow uh, simulates the threat pheromone from bees and that you'll then be stung because you smell now like uh, bee venom. Uh, I don't think that that has played out very well. I don't think that that's true for the most part. So you're not at risk, I don't think, eating a banana in your bee yard. But if you're wearing clothes that have been stung many times, uh, you can expect to receive more stings unless you give it a long time or you launder your clothes, which I highly recommend laundering your bee suits. Take, unzip the veil and do that one by hand, but do the other suits in accordance with the people that manufactured them. So um, Guardian Bee Apparel that makes very good vented bee suits for those of you who are working in the heat right now. It's an American company, family owned. Look them up. He recommended using Tide Free and Clear. Yeah, something like that. Uh, and talked about the whole procedure there. So go to their website, Guardian Bee Apparel, and maybe there'll be a statement there about cleaning it up. And that's one of the good reasons other than just looking better in your bee suit. Uh, get those pheromones off of your bee suit and off your gloves in particular. So that's a good question. Question number two, moving right along, comes from Ron, Greenback, Tennessee. Question, when you get ready to take off supers of honey, do you use bee escapes to eradicate bees or do you use fume boards, which I'm not sure is something that stinky, does not impart something to the honey we are taking off? Your thoughts. Thanks, Ron. Okay, well that's a good question, and I just happen to have an old fume board here. This is what it looks like, for those of you who don't know. I'm sure there are variations of it. It has a metal top. This is a dirty one. I haven't used them for many years. On the inside, it has this fabric, so it's really cottony. Let me see if you can see that close. So it's cottony and textured, and I used to spray it with something called Dunoff. So there are honeybee repellents, and uh, I stopped using it because I was attending seminars and lectures and listening to people talk about things. And uh, when it does, it has to have a strong scent, first of all. When you spray your fume board, the way it works, you want to get your bees out of that honey super. So you take off your outer cover, you take off your inner cover. You put that fume board on there after you've sprayed it liberally, whatever the amount of spray you're supposed to do is. And you put that on top of that super and then you go on about your business. So the plan would be if you have a bunch of beehives, start a whole bunch of them in a row. And then by the time you've put your fifth or sixth one on a hive, you go back to the very first one and you'll find far fewer bees up in that honey super. And they worked actually pretty good. But the smell was really strong and it had to be hot outside because the higher the temperature outside, then notice that metal cover is very thin and so that also heats up that which is now taking the place of your outer cover and it uh, spreads the pheromone through there. Pheromone. 
the essential oil, whatever is in the mix for Dunoff or whatever kind that you wanted to use. But the risk is always there that yes, that makes it into those supers. And the reason I was thinking about that actually early on, so I was using that back in 2009 or eight. That's how I got them out of the honey super. Um, what happened was I could still smell it on the frames so that when I loaded them onto my wagon, which I was just pulling a wagon full of honey supers, when I got them into the garage, which is where I had my extractor, the frames smelled like the Dunoff stuff. So I did not want to use those anymore. So now you might be sitting there going, well, if I don't use a fume board, which I think, by the way, is pretty rare. But if you don't use a fume board, how else can you get them out of there? Well, the other one was a bee escape. And it doesn't have to be this particular bee escape, but this has the features that I like. This particular bee escape happens to me be made by Cirrusel. And but what I want you to notice is we have other bee escapes. I've got one back here. Let me show you some different designs while I'm at it. This is probably the oldest style of bee escape that's out there. And the bees go through the top, so your super would be on this side. The bees go down through that center hole. There's a screen there, and then they go out through the triangles, and they don't find their ways back up into the honey super very quickly. But I have stopped using the wooden version, even though I have a whole rack of them. And the reason is, this one worked better. This has escape cones in it, which, by the way, if you don't want to buy a Cirrusel, frame like this, you can build one yourself because these plastic escape cones, they're called, are sold by the bag full. And I have a bunch of them. And they're orange. So you could actually make your own. But what I liked about this is, when your honey super's on here and the bees can go one way through these cones. So let's see that up close. And when they pass out through these, the shape of the cone means the bees don't want to go back up in there. Can't get through that cone very easily. And here's what works best for that. See all this open screen area? Your bees that have gone down below can still smell the honey supers up above, so they'll try to get up there, but they go to the screen area where they can smell it. If you notice the way the triangle version is made, the screen area is only in the center. So they have an incentive to try to find their way back to that center area and that center hole. And let's not forget, bees are smart. If you leave that on there for a long time, they figure it out and they start going back up. With this one, they're distracted by the fact that they can smell it here, so they're frustrated trying to get up through there, and the rest of them are still coming down through the cones. And notice the centerpiece on this one, there is no screen, it's solid, because we don't want to give the bees incentive to figure out that this is the path back to go above. So again, you can make them yourself. Those come from Cirrusel. If you go to Cirrusel and buy those, Tell them I sent you because you will pay the same as everyone else. So those are the two primary types of bee escapes, but it requires removing the outer cover, removing the inner cover, lifting your medium supers. If you have a couple of them that you're gonna harvest, then you would of course put your bee escape under both those medium boxes or shallows or whatever you have, and then you put it back on. So that requires lifting, that's where the marketing of the fume board seems simpler. You don't have to lift anything off yet. You're just driving them out by creating a scent that the bees don't like and getting out of there. Another thing that some people use, which I personally don't, even though I do have an electric DeWalt 
leaf blower that blows really strong. Some people tilt up their honey super and they use a leaf blower and blow all the bees out from between the frames. I think that's a pretty good way to create a bunch of angry bees and give yourself a bee yard that you can't walk into for a couple of days because that is a rough and tumble method to get your bees out of your super, but I've seen people do it. If you're in a hurry, I understand. Expediency, time is money and all that. Backyard beekeepers, take your time. I say put a bee escape under there if I had to choose one method. So the other thing is, uh, and I mentioned this to someone else who's a friend, and I said, you know, you could just pull frame by frame because often when we're backyard beekeepers and we're pulling honey from honey super, all the honey's not ready to harvest, but we're trying to make room because guess what's coming up right now? A heavy nectar flow, goldenrod in the state of Pennsylvania right now is showing its color. So it's about to start blooming. And that for us is a very big nectar flow. So we have to make room for those bees. So that's something else I want people to be thinking about wherever you live. If you're about to come into the next strong nectar flow, you have to have room for them. So you might have to do an intermediate partial honey removal. And so by pulling individual frames, we still have the box on. And then we push the partially filled frames to the middle and we've drawn out or removed the capped frames, the capped honey. And I just get them by the ears and shake the bees off and then I put it right into, I used to have my own custom built tote, big heavy duty one, and I used those metal uh, studs that you build walls and basements in and stuff like that, but I used those as brackets to support the frames and that way I could put them in there, close it up, and guess what I used to use to keep the bees out of that? those fume boards, I just laid them on top of it while I was working because I figured that also keeps bees from getting the incentive to go in there and follow the honey. So frame by frame, shake them off. And if you don't like to shake them off or if that's too heavy or if that seems too abrupt and you don't want to make your bees unhappy, you can also take uh, a brush and I like drafting brushes. So if you look up drafting tools, uh, they have these big, like a foxtail that's very thin with long bristles and you can brush them right off of there and you can make that smell nice or whatever you want to do um, and uh, brush them off that way. So there's lots of methods. If you're going to lift the boxes and you're fine with that, bee escape. Those things work. And my favorite bee escape to date, as of right now, is the Cirrusel. Works the best. So moving on to question number three. Harold. Hi Fred, I started out with two nukes this spring. One went queenless and is still working on its winter supply, but the other nuke exploded. I started them out in double deeps and a week and a half later, they had every cell in the boxes filled with honey and nectar. I split the hive and put three brood frames with resources in a new box and started watching them closer. They have filled another deep and a medium. I just put another medium on the hive. I want to remove some of the honey, but they have it all capped except the lower corners of the frames. The question is, if I collect the frames and extract the honey, will those uncapped cells cause my honey to spoil? The hive is extremely heavy with two brood boxes and a deep and a medium box full of honey. They're still filling the second medium box. So this is another example, ties into what we just talked about. Be ready to expand your colonies. You're either going to have to remove frames of honey or you're going to have to add supers this time of year to make sure we don't get late season swarms. Hard to do sometimes. Can't get out there. Okay, so here's the thing. This happens a lot. 
you pull up a frame and it's 80 to 90% full of capped cells of honey. And then down on the little corners along the periphery, you'll still, still see some open cells there that are full of honey. They're just not dried down enough or the bees didn't cap them yet. So there's some options there. If you have a, this just happened to have this here. If you have a refractometer like this or any of the other ones, you can get your toothpick out and get a kebab stick or something like that, which you should have with you so you can poke around and get some of that honey out of there and put that on here and you can find out if uh, the water content is low enough. But here's the other thing that I want you to think about. Most of the frame is capped. That means the remaining cells, generally speaking, are also nearly finished. And when it's like that, you'll find that they're often well under 19%. In fact, when there's been 80% or more of the frame capped, and I've been out there with toothpicks and things and done my refractometer checks, they've never been too wet. So here's another thing that you could think about. If you take the frame and you tip it and you give it a shake, if it shakes out easily, then it's too wet. If it stays, you give it a nice shake and nothing comes out, or you tilt it really well and it's really got some viscosity to it and it's not running out of those cells, I would say go ahead and take it. And uh, the other thing is remember that's going to be mixing with your capped honey once you get it into your extractor. So a tiny percentage of open cells being added to your capped honey is going to equalize. So the high moisture content is gonna spread throughout the low moisture content honey and I think you're going to be okay. Now, if you're pulling it up and it's if a third of it is not capped yet and stuff like that, you can give it the shake test and stuff like that. But me personally, I'd leave that one on and let the bees finish it off with caps. So that's it. Pretty easy. Everyone should have a refractometer if they want to. But there's lots of, you know, ways that people decide that they can check. The shake test is probably one of the most common ones. Uh, some people like to put the honey on a knife edge and see if it drips all goes all the way to the end before it drips off or it drips on its way down. So there are a lot of things that people come up with and you can develop your own practical tests. How would you do it? Well, first of all, you need honey that's too wet. So let's say above 20% and then you need honey that's where you want it, 19% or lower. And then you pick a specific knife blade or specific tool or something that you plan to use later and you look at the behavior of the wet honey. Does it really travel all the way down that? And you can get really specific. What angle do I need to have that on exactly to make your test repeatable? And then you see, does it make it halfway down, two thirds of the way down and then drip off when it's too hot? Oh, then you mark that with a grease pencil. And then you take your honey that's good and you take the exact same blade all cleaned up all dried off and you put the same amount of honey on it and you watch to see how it drips down the blade and if it makes it all the way to the end well then you've got your practical test see how much fun that is and it's a good lesson for kids too so if you want to try to come up with your own method that it doesn't involve a refractometer but test more the viscosity of the honey and you should be warned that you better do that in the same temperature too, because if you do that on a really cold day, even honey that's a little more wet, for example, would have greater viscosity. And on a really hot day, it might drip sooner. So temperature would be part of your test parameter. Anyway, 
I think that's pretty much it. So the next question is number four, Pam from Alhambra, California. I started a new hive in April and I'm a beginner beekeeper. I fed them sugar water at the start and thought they were thriving until recently. Their numbers don't seem to be increasing and I don't see great numbers of eggs being laid. When I inspected today, I saw the queen. So I know she's there. They also haven't completely drawn out two of the combs. What am I doing wrong? Should I be feeding them more? Do I need a new queen? Number two, also notice that I have garden lizards around my hive. And I've actually witnessed one pluck one off the retaining wall and, and the hive it sits next to. Could that be the reason for my low numbers? Okay, I would like to know the species of lizard, by the way, but I don't think that's the problem. So there's stuff missing in this question that I would really like to have to give a more thoughtful response. One would be, it says I started a new hive in April. Is that with a package? Is that with a nucleus? Did someone catch a swarm and did that get hived? And how many bees were there? Like, did it fill a box? Were there three frames, five frames, four frames, and so on? So we know that there's a queen there. I also don't know what size hive this is, 10 or eight frame. I'm just gonna guess it's a Langstroth. Okay, so we have to consider how they're configured right now. So the other thing is it doesn't say how many boxes are on there. It says they have drawn, they haven't completely drawn out two of the combs. Two of the combs out of 10 or eight. So by drawn out, meaning that they've drawn out the wax cells, but not necessarily provision the cells with resources. So there's a lot missing here, but the number one thing that I personally would do if I had a colony that was lagging behind like this, this time of year, when it's kind of too late to start off something new, but it sounds like they may have been underpopulated to begin with, and I would consider transferring all of them into a five frame wooden nuke box until they start building back up. And if they're coming out of a 10 frame, for example, you would put all the brood and a couple of nice full frames of resources in there. And then if you needed to expand it, if that's not enough, this actually works better by the way. So let's say you wanted to keep all the frames. I still say go to a nucleus box, a five frame nuke. And then what do you do? If you have five frames in the bottom deep, then what do you do with the leftover five frames? You put them on the second tier. So we have a five frame nucleus box out of wood, not the plastic, not the corrugated, not the ones that people ship in and things like that. Heavy duty, well-made wooden nucleus hives. Five frames, put the other five uh, frames that are not drawn out and those that have some comb drawn out in the box directly above it. And I've found that small colonies that are weak or lagging behind all of a sudden seem to pick up pace when they have a smaller space to manage or if the configuration is more narrow and vertical. So works great and I expanded those this year and they're too prolific for me. But I've noticed that that's one way that we could try and I hope that you'll try something like that and get back to me. I realize it, it requires moving your frames out of the current hive configuration and into a vertical five over five configuration or just a five if they don't have all the resources full and then keep tabs on them once a week, once every 10 days, look in on them, see how the brood is building, make sure the queen has cells to fill 
that they're not becoming honey bound or something like that. But they may just be underpopulated because based on the question, I don't really know how many bees are in the colony and what the circumstances were when you began keeping the bees in that hive. So for future reference, for those that are watching and maybe submitting their own questions, I always want to know where did the bees come from? What did you start with? How long have you had them? What's the hive configuration? And so on. So very simple bullet points about what's going on. I don't think the, the lizard is the reason. So lizards can only eat so many bees, and I don't think uh, they're going to be super excited. But if you can imagine for them to put a real dent in the population, the population of that colony would have to be extremely low. So good luck on that, but that's my recommendation. Reduce the size of the colony. Now say you can't get a hold of nucleus hives. Um, then you can also create spacers that sit inside that hive that reduce the space that the bees are occupying. Some people put, I, I'm not a fan of it, to put rigid insulation board and things like that inside the hive to reduce the living space. I would much rather see you put a wooden nucleus hive by itself, but if you have nothing else, that can work. Bees chew rigid insulation board. They don't recognize that as wood or as an accepted barrier, so often that's kind of a problem unto itself. Moving on, question number five. Are Toledo... 2002, that's the YouTube screen name. I don't see one advantage to going horizontal. The insulation of thicker wood on horizontals can be achieved with two inches thick laminated insulation. And as many pros like you always remind us, bees like to go vertical. And I'm seeing this as a newbie on my first 10 frame deep. They do not like doing the ones on the edge. Fred, don't take this as me being negative, just voicing my confusion about going horizontal. Thanks. And no, I don't see that as negative. But uh, And you should question all configurations. And you should ask questions about why people are doing what they're doing. And uh, the horizontal hives, part of what I do here is review a lot of different hive configurations and then make my observations uh, about how the bees manage. And of course, this is in my climate. And uh, so I entertain a lot of different things, but here's one of the aspects of horizontal hives that I like and why. First of all, you can make that hive any size and weight that you want to build it so that it's almost infinitely expandable based on the materials that you have. It stays in its position. It doesn't go anywhere. My horizontal hives have survived 70 mile an hour wind gusts and stayed right where they are. So they're sturdy, they're rugged. And you're right, the bees would, if given the option, uh, prefer to occupy spaces that are vertical over horizontal. We know that the bees do that over and over and those studies are done and repeated and they're reevaluated. So why on earth would there be an advantage to going horizontal? That's because there are a lot of people uh, that simply can't work vertical. They can't lift boxes. Uh, they can't work the hives well. A lot of people take up beekeeping when they're in retirement. Uh, and they have the time to do something like that. People are mid-stride in their professions. Uh, I went to a presentation recently and... Uh, the individual spoke about doctors and lawyers and people that were trying to get started with beekeeping, but they still had their jobs and they never showed up for bee training. They never showed up for 
taking care of the hive. He even put hives on their property. They never made, you know, the slightest movement to take care of those. So what happens is uh, people later on in life tend to have the time to do it. And so they do. Well, also people aren't as strong physically as they once were. There's another group uh, that is also about uh, accessible beekeeping for people that have handicaps or physical challenges and things like that. Once again, horizontal hive configurations are fantastic for that because all of the lifting comes into one frame. So unless you're putting a bunch of them, you know, in a tote and trying to haul them away, but you have the option to only lift one frame at a time and it keeps beekeeping accessible. And some people have kept bees their whole lives. And uh, they've been able to lift deep boxes and mediums, and they've been able to do all the traditional processing and movement of heavy equipment. Uh, but as they get older, they would rather not give up beekeeping, but uh, would like to do it in a way that isn't so hard on their hands, which often are affected by arthritis, and they have limited ability to grasp and hold and, and lift. And so horizontal hive configurations provide more accessibility. And we can go to the other end of the spectrum. So I have grandsons. You know, their oldest one six years old. So they can lift frames. They can't lift boxes. They can't even pick up a medium super. So when children are starting out in beekeeping, of course they need to be supervised. But let's say you had a grandfather or a great-grandfather that wants to pass this on to their kids. Horizontal hives provide accessibility and uh, ease of use. So now, do I think... If I broke it right down, horizontal hive compared to vertical hive configuration, which ones would the bees do better in? Well, right now, based on the example, although my lands, my long Langstroth, my long Langstroth hive is shoulder to shoulder with the Layens hive as far as population buildup and everything else, but historically they haven't gotten through winter very well, either in the lands or the Long Langstroth. However, this year, the populations are stronger, resources are more plentiful, and so now we're gonna have a real advantage going forward to see how they get through winter. But even small colonies do well in the verticals. So horizontals do, in my opinion, offer some challenges, and yes, you can super insulate a vertical hive if you wanted to. I haven't had to here. I've insulated the inner cover. We're going to talk about that a little bit because somebody else had a question. But uh, here in the snow belt where I live, uh, the heavy sidewall insulation has not been necessary. Is it a benefit to the bees? It is, but uh, it's also not a negative for them to just have the three-quarter inch pine or wood boxes for the sidewalls provided that I give them an insulated inner cover. So then, you know, we're on equal ground now. But uh, horizontal hives, the way I see it, ease of use, a huge bonus when it comes to people that want to continue beekeeping or people in retirement that would like to take it up but are off-put immediately by the idea of picking up a 47-pound medium super full of honey. They just can't do it, and then they need help. That's another thing that is a real advantage to beekeeping. It's something that you can do all by yourself for all ages, and of course not too young because kids don't have good judgment often when they're not being watched. 
But uh, when you're older, you don't want to constantly have to ask people, can you come to my house so I can look at my hives? Can you come to my house while I pull honey or do an inspection? Can you help me pull this and that? That becomes a burden, you know? So you don't want to burden other people. You want a hive configuration that once it's set up and running, you can attend to on your own, regardless of limitations. So that's why I think horizontal hives are great. Keeps people into beekeeping that otherwise probably couldn't. So next question, number six, comes from Jason. Says I have an eight frame hive that has finally gotten built up to two eight frame deeps and was wondering if you felt there would be enough time for me to build out a Ross round box. If not, what would you recommend to do to give them more room or perhaps they will slow down and be fine. This was a new hive that had a few issues getting going this spring, but they are now doing well. And with a bee weaver queen that's laying for about two and a half months, resources are still really good. Mixture of farms and large timbered areas, ag zone five, and this is in PA. So what do you do? Well, I do have, I have Ross rounds on my hives. I have some uh, cut combs, I have small uh, supers. And uh, this would be kind of late uh, to be all of a sudden putting that stuff on your hives. But you could, if they're filling up the two deeps like that, this is a good time to add just a standard medium. Because for example, they could fill up just a couple frames, two or three frames up there. It also gives them room to expand, which is really important going into fall because when the goldenrod and the asters and everything kick in around here, that's a major nectar flow for us. It's also a time when people end up going into the first week of September getting a swarm. And we don't want that this time of year because their chances of recovering after swarming, although I've got some tiny swarms through winter, I'd rather not. I'd rather keep them in their parent hive, in their parent colony, and uh, expand that as necessary during these periods. Then at the end of that, draw the honey off while there's still a couple of weeks of the surplus there, and leave the bottom boxes, the lower boxes, with honey resources to get them through winter. So putting on Ross rounds is a gamble. You could do it, but if they were partially done, what do you do with that? Or if you put on a honey super and, you know, three out of eight frames or three out of ten frames are full and capped, you can still uh, pull that and uh, collect the honey. And still what they have below gets them through winter. So that's kind of what I would recommend. I think it's too late. But if you want to know wherever you're located, if you've got a heavy nectar flow or if you're facing a dearth at the end of the year or what might be going on, I'm going to say the same thing I always say go to Beescape, B-E-E-S-C-A-P-E dot org, put in your address if you're in the United States and uh, see what information they have for you regarding whether you have a heavy, mild, or light nectar flow and at what times through the year that occurs. And of course, your resources are also going to be other beekeepers in your area. A great time to have breakfast at IHOP or somewhere and uh, find out how everybody's doing and what they anticipate as far as historic references for nectar loading at the end of the year. Maybe there are people that put on Ross rounds this time of year and they do well. Mine have been on and they're still not completely done. They've made progress. So if I think if I were putting them on right now where I live, 
I don't think they'd be finished. And then have a bunch of half done Ross rounds that aren't capped. And, or if they cap them when the cells are only halfway drawn out or something, that's no good either because we want them to go to full depth. We really want them loaded. So I recommend just supering as needed. Question number seven. Grilling Network is the YouTube name. Long-time listener, first-time caller. My name is Alan, and I am in my second year of beekeeping and live in Los Angeles. I currently have Apamai, or Apamay, I don't know how to say it, Apamay beehives, which are hives that are insulated and have been easy to manage. My son and I recently volunteered at our local county fair, and we were gifted with two nukes. I was able to get another Apamay hive on time, but needed another hive for the second nuke. A fellow beekeeper from our bee association was kind enough to give me some wooden ware and challenged me to use it. So now we're going to have Apame insulated wooden ware. Standard Lang, I'm guessing. Now to my question. I rewatched your episode number 149, Beginner Beehive Configuration. I would like to clarify the basic or default configuration. Is the bottom board, slotted rack, deep brood chamber, medium brood, insulated inner cover, and you add, remove honey supers, and for the rest of the time, leave the modified insulated cover you made on? I'm assuming this would be beneficial in warmer climates. We don't get cray winters here. I know there's more than one question, but hopefully you can clarify. Thanks in advance. Okay, the best way to respond to this would be a drawing. So, I made this drawing. Langstroth Hive. And I know we go over this, but it doesn't hurt to redo it now that people might be in the same pickle where they have to extend things. So, this is the configuration. And remember, he's doing APMA. This is a wooden hive configuration. Here's my standard setup, solid bottom board, or a screened bottom board that's enclosed so that you can pull the tray out and things like that. The very next level is a two inch slatted rack. Slatted rack serves as a spacer, also prevents winter winds from gusting up into the hive and allows your queen to lay all the way down to the bottom of her frames and the bees use the cells in the brood area all the way down to the bottom of their frames because this spacer separates that from the entrance here where your entrance reducer goes. For an entrance reducer, I suggest a 3 8 inch opening because that keeps out mice as well. So now we've got bottom board, slatted rack, deep brood box, and then the medium so this is what we start with and we let the bees fill out this medium super with honey stores because for me here in pennsylvania this box right here is what they use to get themselves through winter so above that if this were all they filled out because we're starting late in the year right they're probably only going to get the deep box done and if that's the case you would be pulling out the medium super and the insulated inner cover would go right down on top of that until this box had eight out of 10 frames done. Then you add the next super. That insulated inner cover also gets a feeder shim attached to that. So I've been combining these two and making it into one unit. And inside that, over the insulation, there's a center hole coming up through the insulation. That's where we have been putting 
Hive Alive Fondant last year, and it did so well. I did it on 50% of my colonies last year, so I'm putting Hive Alive Fondant on all of my Langstroth hives going into this coming winter. So that feeder shim, and then of course as you expand, you would of course move these two up, put another super there, and then put these on top of it. This is a hive visor. I have a video on how to make them yourself. You put that down here, usually on that first box or between the, around the middle of the second box up from the brood box there. And that gives them a shaded area, shelters them from rain, which by the way can happen a lot at the end of the year. And it drops temperature on the face of the hive and the landing board by an average of 15 degrees. So hive visors are still in play. Those are good feeder shim, and then an insulated outer cover over the top of that. So this double insulation, kind of redundant. There is no leak path through your insulated inner cover because there's a fondant pack on it or there are plugs that go in there. This is the insulated inner cover we're talking about. It has a hard plastic underside so the bees can't chew into it. They go up through this hole. Your fondant sits here. I do not like the edges around it because when you put a box on it, the feeder shim that I have in the drawing there, there's a leak path around these edges and air blows through here. And uh, what I want is to have a dead air space here and then an insulated cover on top of that. So this box around here could be just three inches, but I do... Um, three inches will accommodate a rapid round if that's what you want to use. But instead of dry sugar in wintertime anymore, I'm putting fondant packs on here. That worked so well, I'd be silly to stop doing it. And last year's the first year I did that. All the years I've been keeping bees, I always put rapid rounds on, dry sugar. That still works. Worked last winter, but the colonies that had these on them and the Hive Life fondant packs on them did much better than the colonies that just had the inner covers or my feeder shim combo boxes. These were much improved. So, but as I said, I like to put a three inch wooden trim around this and then I use expansion foam around these edges to combine these and make this one piece because I don't pull this out. This is reversible. It's got some features where you can have an entrance through the end. So there's a hole right here for that. But I close that up because I have reversed the insulation pack. So it closes that off so the bees can't get through to come out here because they don't do any upper venting, no upper entrance. And it keeps it all closed up. And that has also been part of the success of my bees here in this climate. So this is my preferred unit now those are made by be smart designs and they're sold a lot of places amazon everywhere else they're sold at better b if you go to better b and get one and tell them that i sent you you will pay the same as everyone else so but at least i'll know that you heard about it from me so that's good so that's it that's the configuration today for my langstroth hives that does extremely well in this climate which is highly variable we get heavy rain heavy wind we get heavy snow and the other thing is that i'd like to add and put on here but where i am if you're setting up your hive right now for some reason please have your landing board 18 inches from ground level i know some people put their hives right on the ground and everything else but here where i live 
skunks come after your bees and they scratch on the hives and you'll see little muddy paw prints on the support system for your hive, so your hive stand, and you'll see little muddy paw prints on the edge, and this is where you walk by a hive that you're just drinking your coffee, wanting to see how things are going, and guard bees come after you. Because what you don't know is all the way up until about 4.30 in the morning, there was a skunk out there snacking on your bees. And, uh, and you might be saying, Fred, I don't have skunks, I don't need that, I don't care. Okay, so here's the thing though. See, I like to fail safe. So, if you put your hives, 18 inches off the ground at the landing board. You're out of skunk range, but you don't have skunks. So what? What's the drawback? In the wintertime, when the bees fly out of these landing boards, they do their cleansing flights. If you're very close to the ground, the chances of them piling in the snow and being stuck and dying are increased the lower they are to the ground. So the higher your hive is, we've already messed up the bees because they're not up in trees. They're down in these boxes. The boxes are near the ground. I don't know that bees would, on their own, actively occupy a hive that sits right on the ground. Everything comes after them. Then they have to fight everything off. So that's my configuration. And that's an interesting question. And yes, that stayed pretty much the same. What has changed is uh, instead of my combination feeder shim inner cover combo pack with the insulated cover on that, now it's these insulated inner covers by Be Smart Designs because they're so simple. They're lightweight. I have all, you can just store them and set them out there. Oh, I did want to mention something about this. So. See these little pegs on the bottom here? So maybe you've got a hive configuration where the box dimensions are a little off. Guess what I do? I take a carpenter chisel and I chip these things right off. I don't need them. And then you think, well, then when you put it on there, what holds it in place? Won't it just slide everywhere? No, the bees glue up those edges right away with propolis. And that holds them in place. Plus, when you put the lid on, you can strap it all down, which I highly recommend, by the way, shipping straps. On all of the hives, except horizontal hives, don't need them. Latches are fine. They never blow over. So, that's it for that. I think I covered the ground. Good stuff. And I like horizontal hives. I like Langstroth hives. I like flow hives. So I'm not, some people meet me when I go places and they think the flow hive guy, you know, and then they're mad about it. Well, no, I'm, I'm a beekeeper and I'm a bee guy. So it's not just about flow hives or nucleus hives or observation hives or Lands hives or Langstroth hives, long langs. Uh, I like bees. I like keeping bees. The biology of the bees stays the same. It doesn't mean I'm committed or married to one style of hive only. I like to have diversity because then I can make my comparisons under the same conditions in the same climate, which hive configurations work best for me here. So it's a lot of fun. Moving on, question number eight. I like this name. This is Jess from Wicked Good Bulldogs. And they spell Bulldogs, B-U-L-L-D-O-G-G-E-S. So interesting. I follow your overwintering method. When it comes to no upper venting insulated covers, I get mine from Better Bee. That's right, Better Bee sells them. And keeping the entrance reducers on for mouse guards, etc. I live on the coast of Maine, where I believe, where, believe it or not, it's in the 90s and humid this week. Our bees are hot. 
I'm not seeing extreme bearding yet, but my bees are naturally bearding on the hotter days, and I want to make sure I'm doing this right, as I'm pretty sure my mentor thinks I'm crazy. Get that a lot from people that follow my methods. I've decided to keep my insulated covers on year round instead of switching them out for more standard top cover. Let me stop there. Yes, keep your insulated covers on. That insulated inner cover, insulated outer cover, keep that on just like that year round because insulation works to repel heat and give them better control of the climate inside the hive as well as retaining warmth and keeping the cold from sucking all the heat out of a space in the wintertime. So yes, insulated inner covers, insulated outer covers, stay on summer, winter, fall, spring, all seasons. Good call. Also, and maybe this is part of uh, what I'm doing wrong, but I've kept my entrance reducers on. It's set to the larger opening. Have you mentioned that you keep your reducers on year round or is this something I imagined? Do I need to open up my entrances? I also use solid bottom boards. I've never used screened and haven't found the need to yet. I have five colonies, they're strong, producing honey, but not overpopulated and swarmy. I would love to hear your opinion on this. Okay, so this is my opinion. Um, yes, I also leave the entrance reducers on and uh, Unless I see a solid traffic jam at the entrance and the bees cannot do the functions that they normally do. Uh, there's no reason to open up the entire width of the landing board and let all that air just flow that way because guess what bees do? Bees control the airflow extremely well and it's really cool if you have observation hives. I know most of you don't, which is why I'm here to share with you about it. Uh, I've also taken um, anemometers, I think it's called a hot wire anemometer, and uh, I go on the landing boards at the entrances and I see what the air velocity is going through there and what the temperature of the air is coming out of the hive even on hot days. And it's roughly in the mid 90s, 94, 95 degrees of air coming out. This is interesting too. Guess what the bees are doing inside the hive when they're lining up and fanning? They're lining up head to tail, abdomen to head, all the way through the hive, and they're passing the air over their backs and fanning through and out. So on one side, they're fanning up and in, to course, which is why the brood frames are down near the entrance. They're getting air passage there, air movement, and so the brood that's developing, whether it's in the pupa state or open larvae, whatever it is, they have an air exchange there. So it also allows the bees to cool those first. So when they're painting water over the surface of the brood area and they're fanning their wings through evaporation, they're cooling it. So these smaller openings, now I'm not saying in midsummer to have a little one inch opening by three eighths. If you've got a four inch opening by three eighths for a standard sized colony of bees, that's more than enough. And so pulling out your frames can make them feel less secure. Plus right now, this week, We've got yellow jacket wasps pinging on the landing boards already and already putting pressure on honeybee colonies. So with these three or four inch width, three eighths inch high entrance reducers, they're doing really well. The other thing that's doing well still, and I get questions because these did not disappear. These are the hive guard, hive gate units. And look at the entrance width here. I found that on the hives that had two of these together, 
those hives did worse than the hives that only have the single configuration with the single hive gate on it where I live. So bees can defend this better. And not only that, they vent through here. It just sounds like a dryer vent running. You can hear them just cycling the air through. And when the bees line up in these channels and they go face to back and so on, they're either drawing air in one side or out the other. And it's a very efficient way for them to move air. This is also why I don't like the open screen bottom boards. I like screen bottom boards. I don't like them to be open to the air underneath. In other words, screen bottom board, tray underneath, and a closed in back so that they're not venting their air and the scent of honey and everything else all around from outside through their screen bottom board so it's not open. So if we had a solid bottom, an inserted tray, a screen over that because now we've got IPM, integrated pest management. So whatever passes through that number eight hardware cloth, it goes onto the tray and you can pull that out the back and close up the back. So it needs a closing system in my opinion. And uh, so that's a good screen bottom board and it lets you inspect the bottom boards and uh, look for mites and things like that to see what's dropping down there, see what's going on in your hive. But the wide open screen bottom boards, again, Bees like to direct airflow and control humidity, warmth, and everything else inside of their hive, which includes the off-gassing, the CO2 from developing larvae and things like that, and the pupa even breathe through the caps of their cells. So they move air through that, but the bees control it. In a tree, you're not going to see an open bottom board. I know we're not keeping bees in trees, but when we learn about how they manage airflow, we don't want to just take away their ability to control the airflow across the bottom of the hive. And we do take that away when it's an open screen with no containment below that. And that open air, especially when there's a nectar flow on and they're starting to fill their cells and everything else with their winter resources, random wasps and bees smell everything coming out of the bottom of that and they start there. They start clinging and they start trying to get in the back and the sides. That's how you recognize the robbers. They're not even interested in the front entrance. They're trying to find little openings and, and they're trying to hope that uh, maybe you didn't do a very good job preserving your bee equipment. And maybe the joints are starting to separate. That little skinny piece up there at the top of the box that never quite holds on that starts to arch away as it weathers and there's a little opening right there and robbers start getting in. There may be a long time before you realize robbers have found an entrance, but they have to smell it all first. And we want to make sure that wherever they try to get in, they don't successfully get in. When I looked at, in the past, the wide open landing board entrances, because that's what I did, like a lot of people do, when springtime came and the nectar flow started and the bee populations were up, we'd say, oh, they can guard anything now. We'd pull out the whole entrance reducer and we have that full width. And uh, so I did two things. One, I put wooden entrance reducers back on, but I also had a problem with flow hives because their entrances are narrow top to bottom. So there's no real entrance reducer for that. But then they come up with one of their own, which you just happen to have right here. It's this back black flow hive entrance reducer, and look how small it is. And it has a flip side for shipping that has respirator holes in it. It's made out of aluminum. It's good stuff. I don't like it. So... No hit on the flow hive people, but that, especially it's black, by the way, it sits on the front. If you've got uh, midday summer sun hitting that, then that thing really heats up. I did not like it. So what I did to narrow the openings for flow hives are other thin entrance configurations. 
is I rolled aluminum screen and I filled in the sides and gave my bees the two and a half to three inch width opening there. And I used that anemometer and I went along with a little telescoping sensor. And where the screens were, they had an equal amount of air movement. So the bees were actually using the screen to pass air through and there was no jam of bees trying to get in and out through the reduced entrance. So the screen allowed air movement, prevented robbing an entrance by unwanted customers. So, I hope I explained myself on that. But yes, and let people say you're weird. And here's the thing. Um, what I often recommend, and I know that one of the reasons why you're here, you know, is because we collect information from as many different people as we can. And the whole point should be ask questions about everything. Well, how do you know that works? How do you know that doesn't work? How do you know that was a good idea? How did that prove out? Where did you come up with the idea? How do you know what you're saying is true? So one of the best ways that you can prove things out for yourself where you live, because everyone's practices don't work everywhere. Everyone's heavy insulation, for example, would not be necessary everywhere. And the litmus test of that is how well are your bees doing? When you look at them, how's the brood look? How's the population? How are they reacting to the environment? Are they doing everything they're supposed to do? Well, there's that old saying, if it's not broken, you wouldn't fix it. So if we're making modifications, you wouldn't do it to every hive you own at the same time. So we do our modifications incrementally. Sure, I could take a beehive and I could insulate every part of it if I wanted to. And then maybe they did really well, but also maybe the environment did really well that year. Maybe the winter was mild. Maybe all these other things happened. But unless I have one with and one without, I have no comparison. And if I have five with and five without, I have a really good opportunity to evaluate that as I did with insulated inner covers. If I had 10 with and 10 without, now my goal used to be to have only 10 hives. Well, I have 27 now. So then the silver lining of that is it's more bees than I want, but the silver lining is I have more bees to develop my statistical data regarding modifications to the hives. What one's working better? So if I put more insulation, if I, did, if I insulated every hive all at once, uh, then I wouldn't know if one did better or not. So I had hives that are not insulated, hives that are insulated, hives with insulated covers, hives with standard wooden three-quarter inch covers. So what was the response of the bees? How did they do that? How about configurations? Horizontal, vertical, five frame over five frame, 10 over 10, eight over eight. I've gone to 10 everything, by the way. And that's not because tens are better than eights, but I got sick and tired of running to get a super because the colony that I was inspecting was wall to wall jammed with honey. Uh, and I go and I can only find eights or, you know, I have a 10 and I need an eight. So I've gone to 10 frame boxes for everything Langstroth. And same thing with the flow hives. I don't like the six frame flows, which are the eight frame boxes. I've gone to the sevens with the tens exclusively now. And I still have a couple out there that are the eight frame size, which are the six frame flow supers. And I'd like to get rid of those and replace them with full tens. And uh, I just like them better. And they're more stable when it comes to these side winds that we get because my landing boards, again, through the years I've learned, facing your landing board south by southeast results in improved wintering, more frequent cleanser flights, cleansing flights, also 
a quicker response to resource queues out in the environment early in spring. And uh, so there's just a lot of advantages to it. Anyway, you'll find your own methods, but I also recommend that when you make changes, if you have several hives, that you not alter every hive the same way at the same time, so that now we can hopefully begin to build a consensus about what works where you live and what didn't. And sometimes the differences are marginal. So when they're really not significant and it's not important, then uh, it really comes down to what you prefer personally for your bees, what makes it easier for you. It's that, it's that simple. So those are my opinions. Hivevisor, and now we're already on to the fluff section. I know I just went around and went way off the rails on so my response to that, but I'm trying to explain how I arrive at my methods and how I make the decisions that I do. So the other thing is, uh, we're in the fluff, so I, I put up a video this morning and uh, because I had a text from someone who's also one of my mentees for beekeeping, uh, who had a big paper wasp nest on the ground, turned out to be yellow jackets, or kids got stung, and they wanted to know if I would go over there. And uh, actually, they wanted advice on how to deal with them. And I said, if you want me to, I'll come over there and take care of those if I can make a video at the same time. So yeah, we'll make a video. So we turned it into a lesson for the kids. But the ultra free and clear Dawn dish soap um, is what Randy Oliver uh, tested and recommended when we're doing mite washes in place of using alcohol. So then I thought, well, if it's killing honeybees so well, and it works, and it's so inexpensive, two tablespoons to a gallon, and then you have a whole gallon of the solution that now kills bees if you're counting mites, and it has a better mite release action, uh, what if we used it instead of raid or whatever people want to spray their pests with so these were yellow jackets that were down on a grater that they wanted to hook up to their tractor but the grater of course had been sit sitting there for a long time and the paper wasp had built right up against the blade in the grass at ground level horses 50 feet away and the kids went by and what happened predictably kids got stung because it got big but uh, so i'll put a link to that video if you want to check it out Dawn Ultra works just as well as um, your pesticides. It probably doesn't knock them down as quick as like Raid that you can spray them and just watch them die and drop out of the nest. But uh, we have a difference in what's going on environmentally between the two because we know that Dawn Ultra Free and Clear is biodegradable, safe, and uh, we don't have to worry about it with the kids and everything else because it's dish soap. So if that works, even though it knocks them down a little slower, why not use that? So that video is out there and uh, it's deceiving. The video seems like it's really long, but it's not. The, the part where I teach about it and what we're doing is very short. And then of course we have a slow motion extended sequence. So you can see all the steps of the behavior of the wasp, yellow jacket wasp. So, um, Oh yeah, the next thing is my shout out this week, by the way. Sometimes I like to pick a new YouTube channel or something like that, but this is going to be a topic specific one. I'm going to recommend a film that I just watched, showed up in my Netflix streaming feed, and it's called Kiss the Ground. And uh, it actually tied into some other things. People have made comments about the way I garden. I know. 
So because I do acres of sunflowers and I do cosmos and I have maximillions and we have goldenrod and we have clover and everything else, but someone said, hey, when you're doing that kind of tilling, you're destroying all the microbes in the soil. You're wrecking the soil. You should do no-till planting. Well, in my mind, I'm thinking, if I do no-till, I'm not going to get many sunflowers. I'm not going to get much of what I want to grow out there. But then uh, here comes this show, Kiss the Ground. And uh, Kiss the Ground is very interesting because it it talks about farming and agriculture in the United States and I'm sure other parts of the world. If uh, the way we're treating the soil creates, according to this program, a dependency on chemical companies that produce soil fertilization and soil treatment. So, of course, we're killing ground cover and uh, we're making sure that the only thing growing there is the plant, the seed that's planted. That has kind of been... The goal for Monsanto forever, which, by the way, if you don't know, Monsanto is no longer an American company. It's bought out by Bayer. So this idea that destruction of the soil, destruction of the microbes, and the way that we're doing agriculture, and of course it's driven by the government, sorry to say it, but uh, we have subsidies here, and I see this here. The, the farmland around me has changed twice in the last five years. So we have crop farmers here that we don't even get to meet and talk to. They're too big. And that has changed from not so many years ago, it was a family run farm. On the road that passes my house here, we had eight family farms that were operating here. We're down to one. So things are changing and here's the problem. Uh, some of the farmers call this welfare farming. And by that, they mean that the government subsidizes the crops that they're growing. So what do they grow here now? Corn and soy only. And they rotate between the two. So boring, first of all. The second part is that it's because they're paid to do it. And they have a guaranteed market for their product. So it seems appealing. But the thing is, once you get locked in, I do remember talking to one farmer before that just the cost of the fertilizer necessary and because it's specific to the crop that they're going to grow and of course the treatment of the soil before the crop is planted and then once the plant uh, germinates and is growing there's another treatment that goes on there to defeat all the competing uh, ground cover so this documentary kiss the ground really demonstrates what's wrong with that and they've got some model farms of course that have to justify uh, that more money can be made by actually treating the soil well, abandoning the dependency on subsidized crops, and instead diversification of the farm. And, we, and everyone I've talked to over the past year that's doing research, even in bees, for example, they always swing it around to bees are negatively impacted by land use. And that ties in with agriculture. And when agriculture is being done in a way that is not sustainable environmentally, we have to take a look at it. And since the government subsidizes corn and soy, that means your money is subsidizing it. So you're paying. So therefore, your financial vote is important. And I'm not going completely nuts on this, but I've often thought 
that the way we're treating the ground, because I look at the difference just in my property to the adjacent farm property, and whenever there's overspray, they've actually killed trees on my property before, just because they sprayed when the wind was blowing. Uh, and my bee yard is right there, right up against the property line, and often the huge tractor will stop right there while the guy makes a phone call, sitting in the cab, vibrating the soil and everything else, and there's big bee signs out. Now, I'm not a commercial beekeeper, and the impact is tiny, but did you have to stop right next to my bee yard with your giant spraying rig? So things are changing. And I think that we have an opportunity collectively uh, by casting uh, votes as dollars uh, in what uh, agricultural ventures we support when we buy. So interesting stuff. Kiss the ground. Check that out. And so as we close out today, I'm going to leave an extended video of the bee grooming that was so interesting at the very beginning and you can just watch it and see how they behave because it's just kind of interesting. They're incredibly detailed in how they groom bees that come in and need to be cleaned up by the groomers. How they decide which incoming forager ghost gets diverted to the groomer, I don't know because it's not like there's a a worker just inside that when the forager comes in and goes to the dance floor, if they're communicating that they've got a nectar resource or a pollen resource, they go to the dance floor and do their waggle dance to let the others know where to go and get some of the same stuff. Or is there a worker that's there that as they come in goes, oh, beep, you got to go over here to the grooming area because this is interesting. The grooming is occurring. So if this is a deep single frame, right, uh, over here in the lower you know, quarter of that frame, that's where all the grooming is happening. It's really interesting. So what makes a bee decide or gets forced into going to that corner, spread your wings out and get groomed? I don't know. It's interesting stuff. Fun to watch. But I do want to thank you for being here with me today and for watching and for those of you who submitted your questions. And again, please don't forget to look down in the video description to see other resources based on today's presentation. Thanks for being here and I hope you have a fantastic weekend.